Welcome to America's most livable city. Please ignore the invisibles with me. See Pittsburgh, we built its economy, but we still lead the nation in black poverty. Welcome to America's most livable city. Just ignore the invisibles with me. And state your business, because the place you live in depends on your race and privilege. Hello, everybody. Welcome. It is Tuesday at 2, and it is what Black Pittsburgh needs to know. I am your host of the show, Dr. Cheryl Hall Russell, joined, with, uh, joined by uh, Dr. Jamil Bay of the Urban Kind Institute, and of course, One Hood Media's only Jasiri X, who is the co founder and president. Hey, guys. What's up? What's up? Hey, hey. Everybody, good to see everybody. I'm you know, I, I grow to miss you now that we've gone every two weeks. <laughs> not only that, it looks like when we went to t- every two weeks, everything else just got on fire. And we are all, you know, the three of us all over the place working on stuff, which is cool. It's stuff that needs True. to be done, but, you know, we're just not in the room as much as we used to be. Today, we're going to be looking at corporate land grabs and gentrification and housing and a lot of the stuff that, um, again, our audience asks us to talk about some things. We listen to you and we try to, to bring the topics to you. Um, but before we do all that, ooh, a lot going on in our first 15 today. What y'all want to talk about? Well, the COVID numbers are hitting back up. And, you know, the, there's a couple of things going on there. You know, one, the, the, they're counting them more accurately now in the sense that you know, folks, the, the, this, this thing is asking the, all of this, uh, the county health department to report numbers differently. And so that's created one spike. But at the same time, you know, people are indoors now and you know, the vaccination rates are still relatively low. And, you know, folks are getting sick and, you know, primarily our folks still at a higher rate still. Yeah. And so that, that's still a thing. And this is still a thing that's killing people. So right. I mean, that's, it, it hasn't lightened. It hasn't changed his mind about how it wants to attack our bodies. It's just that we are kind of chilling to the, to the idea of it. Um, when you talk about, you know, everybody being back inside again, talk to me about that, the threat of that. Why is that, why is that escalating? Well, it's just that so many folks have gotten tired of wearing masks. And, you know, people are assuming that people are vaccinated when a lot of times they're not. I mean, you see, you know, Aaron Rodgers, Chris Rock, you know, folks said that they were vaccinated and were. And this is happening in our families. Yeah, Chris Rock, he's, he's, he's tweeting, no, I got COVID. I'm just as serious. Y'all get vaccinated. He went, meanwhile, he, he admitted that he lied and said he was vaccinated. He made an old joke about it on one of those shows about how he jumped the line, used his privilege and his celebrity to jump the line. And turns out that he didn't. But uh, he admitted that he was not vaccinated. And now he's sick and tweeting around. But, uh, you know, that, that's two, you know, Aaron Rodgers and Chris Rock are celebrities and famous with millions of dollars in their accounts. But, you know, it's happening that, you know, people we work with, people in our families who we assume are vaccinated because they're showing up without, you know, without masks. And, you know, a lot of people still are not taking this seriously. And you see in some countries, you know, they're back on lockdowns and people who are not vaccinated or not allowed out. What country was that? One of those European countries in the Eastern Europe. Wow. So it's, it's still serious. 
So we go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, I saw um, yesterday, Dr. Bay, that um, Governor Wolf tweeted the vaccination numbers for PA. And I think he said something like, um, I think it was 73% for Pennsylvania. I think it was like 90 something percent of people that have at least one shot. And he was saying that was like third out of states in the, in the United States. Does that, what does that mean? And does that mean, does that, is that a positive thing or? Well, it is positive relative to other people, but there's, there's still an asterisk and some fine print about what he's talking about. You know, um, the folks, I don't remember exactly how he phrased it, but when you look behind it, it's still that th- th- there's a certain some group of people who wanted to be vaccinated or in this category that, that are not back, you know, that helped to reach that number. Right. That, I mean, the, the mythical number, I'm not going to say mythical, the, the magical number was, well, you know, if we're at 80%, we get herd immunity. But we're learning, you know, that that kind of conversation, when you see that your antibodies are not, do not last. And people who've had the virus are reinfected. People who've gotten vaccinations are reinfected. You know, this is, you know, in, in a lot of the ways, you know, they're, as they're learning more about this relatively new, new virus, you know, you think about chicken box. You might have had that when you were a kid. But that elements of that virus are still alive in your body. 40 years later, you got shingles because that virus is activated again. And so, you know, as they're learning more, we don't have a 40-year record of studying what's happening with COVID. But the number is, is significant that he's talking about. That, you know, there's progress, but that's still, that's still, that's not the entire adult population that's vaccinated at that rate. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Because our numbers are still under 40%, right? In the Black community? Yeah. Well, yes. Black folks are still like, nah, we, we ain't getting that. <laughs> All right. There's that. Um, so we got a couple trials going on right now, y'all. And I have to be honest, I can only take a little bit a day on either one of these because my my head is about to blow up. You got poor little Kyle Rittenhauser who's crying his way through. And, and the judge says, you know, Kyle, you know, that gun you had, that automatic weapon, we're just going to throw that. We're going to throw that out. And then we've got the Aubrey trial where the end, this, this defense uh, council is just wilding in terms of his racism. And don't bring the black pastors in here. And, and what if, what if white people bought in a bunch of Colonel Sanders into the courtroom? And I mean, I, are we seriously looking at the 1950s as we watch these trials? Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting because it kind of, you know, um, it makes me think of how I, I, I cringe. One of the things that I hate when people say in this current discourse is that we're more divided now more than ever. Um, and it's like, nah, that's, we've always been, you know, divided like that. Mean, America. Right. When were we together? When were we all against one group that was in there? It, it, it never happened. And so I think what, but what we're able to see because it's being played out, you know, or on, on, a, on a big stage in front of us, we're able to see like white privilege in effect, right? We, you know, we saw uh, in Cleveland, you know, Tamir Rice was shot down for playing with a toy gun at a park across the street, right? And one of the things, you know, people criticize his mom, like, why, why would you let your son play with this gun, this toy gun? And he was shot down within seconds. But, you know, one of the things people mentioned Cal Rittenhouse's mom hasn't even been charged, although that she allowed 
she drove her son across state lines with an automatic weapon. And, and, and that's the same, you know, people are, are holding her accountable, holding her feet to the fire. So the, the, the idea that this judge says that, like, carrying an AK-47 is not a dangerous weapon. And they throw that out. I mean, when we talk about white privilege, I mean, this is what we mean. This is exactly what we mean. And if you can watch this and say, like, white privilege doesn't get or just like you said, watch the defense attorney say Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson's mere presence. It's going to somehow intimidate a jury where, right? A, a jury where? And so I think we're seeing, you know, um, all of these things play out right in front of our eyes. And if we had, if you somehow had believed that we were in some post-racial America because Obama got elected president or Ed Gainey's mayor, uh, um, is mayor-elect, that's a, then, then you're, 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 you're begging at this point. It, and this, it, 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 this to, to paraphrase or put it another way, this is what white folks do. This is how it works for them. This is what, I mean, from the door, the judge in the Rittenhouse case was like, no, don't come in here talking about that. These, uh, it's okay. To, he shot thugs and, and what, what, they, 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 not, they, right, right. Well, whatever the hell it was, he's calling they call them. Yeah, but right. they call them riders. Right. But well, we can't go right. So, so, I mean, it's, this is, it's on display. And so we said, we did not have 24 hour news coverage throughout the history of this effed up history of this country. We did not have everybody with cameras and phones everywhere to record everything. What we see now, we see what white folks do. This is how the system works out for them. This is how they claim it. Everything from, you know, gerrymandering and rigging elections, intimidating voters to, you know, I'm intimidating who's allowed to show up at the court. I'm, I got, I'm, a, I, it's in my right to speak up to, to talk about that, you know. So this is like, you're on display. He was so comfortable. He really? was all comfortable. Which other, how many black pastors does this family have? You know, I was like, I, I should never be stunned at this point, but I was like, right, you me. But, but then it'd be like, well, ain't this America? Like, what? We can't, but, but once again, like, We've always been police. As, as Black people, we've always been regulated as to where we can go, with how many of us can be around one another at one particular time. We've always been policed like this. And that's one of the things where, you know, you see so much of this white pushback against wearing masks and different mandates is because they're not used to being policed. Like, we're used to being police. We're used to being regulated. We're used to our movement being controlled. They're not used to it. Listen, I was, I was doing a workshop the other day and we introduced this, this, um, this law from 1669 called the Casual Killing Act. And basically it said, if you got some black folks acting up, you know, and, and they're getting out of control, hey, if you got to kill them, kill them. You, we don't, we're not even going to adjudicate this because we realize they're your property or even if they're not yours, they're yeah. not human. So if you got to take somebody out, please just don't fill up the court systems. With, with these cases cause, and it literally is called the Casual Killing Act of 1669. And so, I mean, it really kind of set the, it, when I, and I bring that up because that's just the mentality. And so as I go through this whole thing that I teach about, it is just year after year after year of these acts and these, uh, oh, this, you know, black folks got away with this. Let's put something else around that. But it was all about policing bodies. And that has just been 400 years of, of policing us. Right. 
and and, and it, it's still happening when you look at all of this voter, you know, now you want to regulate we vote how we vote. I mean, so we're all of this is still playing out um in real time right in front of us. And I think it's more so about for us, is how we're going to um respond to it and how we're gonna organize to push back against that. So I think that's right. that's our call. And that's, you know, been the call really, you know, um since since we started this show as really uh, to have a conversation with us about how do we respond to these different things that are happening in our community. Um, speaking of our community, I mean, we've been talking nationally, but, you know, in, in terms of police and bodies, again, this Jim Rogers case is, is getting more sickening uh, by the day. If, if you're not familiar with this, this was the, the man that uh, I, I don't steal. And maybe you guys do know how he ended up with the bike that he had, but he bought it back. They said, said he stole the bike. He bought it back. The police were called. And initially the conversation was, you know, he was resisting, he got tased, he ended up dying. And then there was the owner of the bike was saying things like, um, you know, well, you know, it, it was just a $50 bike. There was no reason for it to go that far. Now we found it out that they called to police repeatedly to have them come back and escalated this situation that ends up with this black police officers tasing this man over a $50 bike. And, and I think, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Russell, um, to me, this is this highlights like why the conversation that we're going to have is so important. Like when you talk about gentrification, when you talk about your neighborhood changing, this is one of the things that it could bring with it, right? Yeah. People that now see you in the community and your mere presence is a threat, right? You're, I mean, he did. I mean, he took a bike and he brought I me mean, a, a, a bike that you know they said they were going to give away that they had for fifty dollars and brought the bike back, and like, but. But he just like you said, here were people that saw this black man as a threat to them somehow, even though all he did was take a bike and ride it around. And now he's dead. You know what I'm saying? So it would be interesting because remember, initially they were like, oh, we don't want to know why the police did that. And it's like, so it'd be interesting to go back and say, you know, really, like, what, what was it about this man that like you felt he was so threatened for you that you kept calling the police again and again and again? But well, we've seen this with Karen after Karen and kins or whatever you want to say we've seen you know the smallest thing we've seen white people weaponize the police against us and we always end up being killed because of it yeah they weaponize them and often they happily come to do the to do the work Absolutely. oh and it's this is not just a pittsburgh thing by any means but in any gentrifying community if you start looking at the police calls that go up because of Somebody playing their music who's been playing their music in the same apartment for four generations. Something, like, you know, this is um, so. So we don't really want to talk about gentrification from a whole lot of angles. I think when we think about gentrification, we think we think East Liberty, right? We think this the shiny stuff, move black folks out, get to coffee shops and the sterile, you know, office space. But the cycle of gentrifying is a lot longer than that. And sometimes, you know, it starts with destabilizing housing in poor neighborhoods. And there's a whole lot of that going on right now. And so that, that's what we want to focus on today. You know, how these corporate landlords are now starting to buy up a bunch of property in Pittsburgh, how that's impacting renters and homeowners alike, how COVID just made this thing even more special. There's some things we want you guys to listen to, to learn about and to activate on. And, you know, that's why we're here. So uh, we are going to bring on Carl Redwood to be a part of this conversation. 
Carl is executive director now for the Black Worker Center, but of course is is well known for his work in the Hill since uh, Hill. Uh, I can't even get it out. The census group and also as a, as an educator. So if we could bring Carl in. I'd appreciate it. Hey, Carl. Hey, how are you guys doing? Good to be here. Yeah. yeah. Some of the pre-conversation we were having about housing is that there's just so much to talk about. There, you know, it's hard to even bucket, you know, the conversations. But the one thing that I know we talked about in pre-production was we've got all of these um, corporate landlords for, I mean, out, out of the country, uh, large ones out of California that have come in, according to a report by Christopher uh, Brim that says they have bought $35 million in housing since the end of 2019, just single family housing all over the Pittsburgh region. And, uh, you know, some of it is a little bit higher end, but most of this is low income housing. They are swooping up. Uh, stats are showing that in places like Milwaukee and other places, this has already been happening and we know what some of the results are. So that's, I'm, I just put it all out there for us to kind of jump in you know, wherever we want to, to talk about what we think is happening. Yeah, I think it's really important to talk about uh, what's going on here in the, particularly here in the Allegheny County, Pittsburgh region, but also to put it in perspective, I want to share a couple of things just from an Urban Institute report from 2019. Mm -hmm. Basically, in the report, they said Black homeownership is in crisis, although homeownership rates for other racial groups have largely recovered since the 2008 housing crisis. Black homeownership continues to, to, to decline, recently hitting an all-time low in the first quarter of 2019. Recently uh, hitting an all-time low in the first quarter of 2019. Uh, but that's a really key fact that Urban Institute is putting forward, lower than ever, not just lower than re recent times, but lower than uh, ever. Hey. Whew. That's, that's kind of... Okay. They raised four other things in this report real quick. The current 30 percentage point gap between black and white home ownership is larger than it was in 1968 when housing discrimination was legal. How? First, the second fact, if black home ownership rate were the same today as it was in 2000, America would have 770,000 additional black homeowners. The third point, Homeownership is lower for black college graduates than for white high school dropouts. And the fourth thing is black borrowers are less likely to meet the traditional credit standards necessary to qualify for a mortgage. But this was from a report in 2019. And since then, the decline has continued. And it's continued. That's, that's federal, but the same pattern is available and happens every day right here in Pittsburgh and in Allegheny County. When we talk about corporate landowners and large corporate landowners, the biggest ones are the banks. Yeah. I mean, for real, most of us that are paying mortgages, we're, we say we're homeowners, but the bank has the deed, right? You can get the deed once you finish paying, but, and you call yourself a homeowner, but really a lot of us are on the way to becoming homeowners. Uh, and I don't even know if there's a, there's a stat on the number of black folks who outright own their homes versus the number who are, uh, waiting to get to deed. Yeah. Most of them are like me about 20 years out from actually owning. So, you know, what's escalating this too right now, Carl, your, that report was 2019. 
the, the stuff that we looked at here was 2020. And so you've already got folks who are barely hanging on to the houses. COVID shows up. So now we got job losses. And now we buy, you know, the signs are popping up all over the place. People are desperate. They're selling their houses. And these are houses we'll be a decade trying to get back into again. Because these large corporations, and it, it's it's not just older occupied folks. I mean, you see those signs all over the neighborhood. You got people sending you text messages and mail, you know, to your house. We'll buy your house, and uh, but it, it's more. It's more. It's also, you know, during the during the pandemic, when the state of Pennsylvania failed to distribute the relief money for people who were behind on their rent. Right. And, you know, remember we talked about that. And landlords. Right, right. So, so you know, we had a relatively high number of small landlords. You know, I own two or three houses in my neighborhood. I rent them out and people were behind on rent. They're my neighbors. You know, they're my, I know these people. I don't want to evict them, but I got bills to pay. And so then these corporations said, hey, we got you. Let us, let us buy your house. And they buy the house from those folks. And without those relationships, Let's keep, let's keep kicking with the evictions. No, I'm not invested any money in the house. I'm just, but I'm raising the rent. And we've talked to people who've seen after the home, after the home's been sold, you know, 20% rent increases in the next year. Right. It's all of these processes that are played that are compounding and making it so much more difficult. And it's not just a city phenomenon. Right. But I mean, as you said, it's not just the Pittsburgh phenomenon, but what's not happening in Pittsburgh you know, city council, county council, they're not doing anything to galvanize people, to get people ready or to prep or to do anything to block it. So many of these folks say, hey, tax property is on the tax roster, collected taxes, let's, let's not worry about it. And so again, protections for vulnerable people. When you didn't do anything to put people in a position where they were earning a livable wage, they didn't have the protections to make sure that the homes that they live in were, uh, quality homes, and now that those homes are lost, you know, city council, county council is silent on the issue. There, and there are things they can do. I mean, there are some solutions. I know we tend to go to solutions toward the end of the show, but when you're talking about council, I mean, they got to think about things about keeping rent low, about, you know, because what happens is these guys come in, when you say they raise the rent by 20%, if, if your rent is already 50% of what you're earning. Right. You go up another twenty percent. You just uh, you just destabilize. You're out. Right. right. It's effectively an eviction. True. Yeah. And I mean, I think I think we're seeing in in those areas where gentrification is happening. You know, you sent us a map, and it was a map that showed like the neighborhoods in which the black population has been leaving, and the the biggest one was the neighborhood I currently occupy, East Liberty. And so now, just like you said, those rents go up. You know, Section 8 is canceled. All of that stuff happens. Now, the the actual trajectory of the whole neighborhood, the way the neighborhood looks begin to change because Black people are forced now. I can't, although I might have grow, grow up here, although I might have been here my whole life, I simply can't afford to live here. And now people are moving moving out of the neighborhood at a rapid rate. And like I said, I, I, I've seen it happen on my own street, um, how this thing begins to play out. And I think you also have a, a piece um, that... When you laid that out, Carl, and uh, 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 if you have, if if you could maybe even send us a link of that report so we could put that report in chat because I think that's uh, also powerful. But you also had this phenomenon of even if you 
like if you're black and get the house appraised, that it was this phenomenon of where, you know, you had black couples that had that got the house appraised and then like left and made it seem like it was a white owned home and the value went up, not 5% or 10%, but the value went up like 30 to 40% um, in terms of the value of that home. So you didn't, you also have that. So then even if you are a homeowner, you have to like put white peak pictures around the house and have some white stand in just to even get the correct value of your home. So is this, I, I guess my, my question to you, Carl, because it seems like this is built into, you know, it wasn't just like you said, to, to, to think about home ownership now being, being wider, the gap being wider now than when it was illegal, when it was legal to discriminate against us. That means that, 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 that racism, that white supremacy has been institutionalized. It, it's been built into the system, right? Um, how do we, and, and we kind of saw that with the report that came out a few months ago that showed like all of these banks not even lending to black people. That showed that like it was easier for a white family to buy, purchase a home in a black neighborhood than a black person. So like, how do we then push back against this, you know, um, white supremacy that seems baked into the system. Yeah, I just think there's a couple of things. One, on the home ownership uh, area, it, it is important that we have more people who can buy homes because that's one way to kind of build security. I'm not saying wealth. I'm saying building security for yourself and your family where you have a place of your own to go to. However, when they sell it to us, they sell it as wealth build, which is the American dream for everybody. Sure. Your home is your first step towards building wealth. And that's a myth for the majority of our families. The majority of black families in the country and in, in Pittsburgh and Allegheny County are renters, not homeowners. The majority of white families in Allegheny County, or not families, households, are homeowners. The home ownership rate for white households is 71%. For black households is 36.9%. So the home ownership rate is half the home ownership rate of white families. But also the median household income for black families is half that of white families. Where black families' um, median household incomes are in the $30,000 range, where white families are in the $70,000 range. So Home ownership is half, median incomes are half. In order to buy a house, you have to be able to pay off a mortgage over X number of years. Just think about the job market that you know about out there today. Like that whole 30 year mortgage thing was based on people working in jobs like union jobs and other jobs where they could feel confident that they could work one place for 30 years and retire and have benefits and be and have income every month to pay that mortgage to buy those homes. And that's how a lot of white families and even black families were able to buy homes in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, so from the 80s on, that has really changed. Um, so I, I, I just think that, uh, one, we have to continue to encourage families that can to purchase property and have property because that's some security. But on the other hand, we have to realize that the majority of our families will not be ha homeowners. And going forward in the future, that's not going to be really the realistic thing. So we have to stop this myth we have that all of our families 
will be homeowners and that's the way that our families will make it. And instead, we have to understand that the majority of our families are going to be renters, will continue to be renters, and even some of us who are homeowners now will become renters. Um, so what we have to do is really look at a policy solutions that really look at who we are for real and focus more on the renter side and not much as much on the homeowner side. But that doesn't mean we don't support organizations like Catapult and other organizations that are helping people be able to get their credit in, in a situation so they can purchase homes. Um, but home ownership is not the, it's not the solution. And wealth building should not be our goal. It should really be providing security and safety for our families, however that happens. And it's not, a, it, I mean, the myth. The danger is they got us chasing them that don't don't work for them, let alone work for us. Well, it makes winners and losers. Um, you know, the winners are those people who worked hard and, you know, put money down and bought a house. And the losers are those, you know, who are renting. And, and to Jasiri's point, when you're driving down the the cost, the, the, the value of a house, you definitely are wealth building. If if your house ends up being worth, you know, $45,000, nobody's going to get rich when you pay and you move that house to the next generation. So it, 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 that strategy just just is not really working. I, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, some, some, uh, some research about what happens when these folks come in and do buy up the few houses and, and the rental properties and, and what they do. Like you said earlier, the rents go up, the maintenance goes down. So suddenly you had your mom and pop groups who, who had two or three houses, at least they were taking care of them. You got your corporate folks are coming in. And they just stop taking care of the houses and raise the rent. And they like single family houses because it's harder for communities to get together in a single family house than if you're living in a building with, you know, you got 60 people you're leasing to, they're going to get together and complain about it. So now they're targeting the purchase of single houses uh, to kind of take away the power. And there's this big monopoly of ownership. There are these massive organizations now around the country who are just buying these things. And, you know, policy-wise, we got to slow their roll because they're taking away all available houses. And, you know, it's just sad to be online now and, and hear people talk about their rent or wanting to buy a house and can't buy one that's affordable. I mean, what, what in policy do we do to, to really help these, these, these renters? How do we expand this, Carl? What other, some of the other that you have? I think, like you, I think like you said, at first, we have to understand the magnitude of the problem. So we have to kind of have an eye on these different entities and some of the, one of the entities is real estate investment trusts. And that's all they do. They, they're just financial instruments to buy a property, not so much to make, not even so much to make money from rent, but just to control it as an asset and then flip it to another real estate investment trust. Just like, just like our mortgage companies take your mortgage and they sell it to another company and they sell it to another company. And you're going to try to find out who has your mortgage. It's no longer PNC bank or Mellon Bank, you don't even know who has it anymore because they they make money by flipping financial instruments, and they see single the single family housing market is the newest market that they've really moved into. Uh, they already have like you know uh, multifamily rental kind of properties are already pretty much monopolized, but to monopolize the single family housing market, which really is a result of the two thousand eight crisis around how where the banks became the main holder of the, the, the properties that were foreclosed upon. And then these real estate investment trusts, trusts came in and bought them from the banks 
and figuring out, they figure out a way how to, they can make profit by just flipping property and not by taking care of it, not by charging rents, but by reselling it, reselling it, reselling it as the values change. So like if you're in Pittsburgh and you own 20 properties in the Hill District, 15, 20 years ago, those properties have appreciated quite a bit just because of the development going on in the Hill District and neighborhoods of the Hill District. The same thing in East Liberty. If you own property in East Liberty, as East Liberty changes and that that house that you got for $60,000 30 years ago is now $320,000, you know, there's, there's an appreciation, which normally a single family would be looking to try to reap some of that. But these, these trusts and these corporate landlords have figured out the same thing. And, and that's why they swoop in and they, they send you those cards to say, winter is coming. Do you have any problem with properties you want to sell before the end of the year? We pay care and close quickly. No realtor fees, commissions, and no closing costs. As is no repairs necessary to sell with us. I mean, so they're, you know, they're pushing that really strong to get single family homeowners and small landlords to sell out to these larger corporations that, uh, that are in business to just make generate profit and not to operate housing. So some of them are empty. Not any single that. I was surprised. So, so how do we help folks? Cause all of us, I mean, we were laughing kind of behind the scenes with the number of cards, texts, letters. I mean, my phone rings. I don't even know how they had my number. Uh, I still got an Indiana number. They found me to call me. And I, you know, I always offer the house to them for over a million and somehow the phone disconnects. But, uh, you know, some folks though are struggling and they, they got the family house and those calls cast them at opportune times. And what are their alter alternatives? We can't just say, don't sell to these people when you're barely making your mortgage. I mean, what do we say to folks who are struggling like that? Yeah. I just think right now we don't have good alternatives, but, but we need to create policy alternatives that can step into that gap. So instead of like a, a corporate headhunter kind of real estate firm coming in and buying your house, we need to have the city government or the county government to set up a fund to purchase homes from people who might be in distress and turn them into community, community land trust properties that maintain affordability for long-term, as opposed to just getting it into the flipping market where it'll just be flipped way out of the possibility of anybody either purchasing or renting that in the future that looks like us. So one, we need some policy changes and with the new administration at the city, we need to propose some kinds of policies like that, that housing be taken back and reclaimed and even pilot programs. Uh, so, I mean, the mayor's office needs to be asking the same question you all are asking is what's up with this corporate landlord thing and how is that impacting the future of this city uh, and the future, particularly for the long-term residents of this city? Because um, at one policy, or one time the policy of the city was to get rid of low-income folks uh, and some will say that's still the policy, uh, but we have to make sure that doesn't continue to be the policy under the new administration, but that doesn't happen by accident. It happens because we actually have plans in place to, to help people with the right to remain in Pittsburgh, even when your incomes go down in COVID and other times, uh, 
and also the right to return to Pittsburgh for many of the folks who've been pushed out over the years. And you can return either as renters or the Community Land Trust provides a more reasonable homeownership opportunity for many families so we could get many more families into homes long-term uh, with things like Community Land Trust that when you sell the house, you can't flip it for a fantastic amount. So it's not going to make a killing for that individual homeowner, but the homeowner will realize some appreciation uh, and the next homeowner won't be faced with, uh, you know, triple triple the amount to try to purchase to get into that home. But long-term affordability of homeownership can be accomplished through using the land bank and community land trusts. And also uh, there need to be some rental policies that also do that. But we got to we gotta beat back this landlord saying, but first the, the city has to recognize it as a problem. And I'm not sure that they do it. And I think that beyond recognizing the problem, uh, establishing the willingness to address the problem. A lot of the tools and, and models are in place. You know, you can look at other cities and say, what are some other folks doing? And okay, you're as a, as a land, as a property owner, I'm falling behind on my taxes and I still have tenants who are paying me rent. You know, some cities, okay, well, let's offer that, you know, seize the property, which the city has a right to do and offer that property for sale to the family that lives in that hole. You know, we see example that, that, a, a rental registry. How are we enforcing violations of property? And, you know, how about a functioning land bank? In many cities, the land bank is a tool in this, in, in, in some of these battles. In Pittsburgh, our land bank has been a political tool of the football. Councilman Burgess and Lavelle and uh, Councilman Mikhail Smith have stifled the land bank's ability to do anything. Eight years in, we've not transacted a single property. They've effectively wound, you know, stop what so many folks were fighting for to be the tool to help blight, to help communities take ownership. And the failure of the leadership, Black leadership in city council to uh, deny the people that for whatever reason, the lack of uh, political will for Purdue to push that, you know, this is, there are people we can point at to say, okay, you could have done better. You should have done. I'm on the land bank. I'm the vice president of the land bank board. Have been. You know, but you're fighting against forces and powers that do not want to see a land bank. And so we think a land bank is a tool, not with it, not as it's currently led in structure. Yeah, what is, I, you know, I don't want to go too deep down that, but it 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 really blows my mind that eight years. Eight and years. Because really? I, I was, you know, I was there. I was at the at the URA board, and I remember that hype, you know, about it. And then it, it reminds me of the scene from Fridays when uh, John, what's his name? Well, why, why do you want to be a dog catcher? You hate dogs, right? And, that, and that's the point of it. You, you grab a dog and you, you know, Burgess, Lavelle, and Teresa Kell Smith. They didn't want a land bank. And so they appointed themselves on the land bank and the proof is in the pudding. Eight years later, nothing happened. Wow. You want to shut it down? Take leadership in it and do nothing. And let's invite them on to discuss that if they see otherwise. Definitely open to that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just, just the accountability in that. Um, right. They, they, enough. Don't give me... Don't get me rolling too much of this. You're not, but I mean, it's just it's just frustrating. 
Yeah, no, I'm I'm good with you saying exactly what you're saying. I mean, I, I, I said I want to sit on the land bank until the first property and then turn the seat over, let somebody else. And I'm stuck in that eight years because I, you know, too stubborn to just, okay, walk away. Let's get it functional, get the procedures in place and let somebody take that seat. Well, I think, I think, and this is maybe a question for, for you, um, um, Carl, because you had mentioned it's a new administration. Um, one, do, do you see the possibility of a change with the new administration? And then two, what are some things that we have to, what should we be pushing for? What should we, we be asking for? You know, normally um, people go in and say, okay, this is what we want to see in the first 100 days. Are there, is it, you know, we want to see the land bank actualized to be something real? What are some of the things that we should be asking for as we, you know, about to go into um, um, 2022 with the, with the new administration? Yeah, I think we do need to work to support a housing recovery kind of policy. That's not so much just like physical land recovery, but just recovering our families from what happened under COVID and other things. Uh, and I think the Ganey administration definitely could do some things, but we have to have a proposal. But more important than a proposal is we have to organize families in our communities right. uh, to kind of to help the, help the mayor's office do right. Because they're not going to do right just because you know where they live or you know where they're at. They'll do right because there's organized folks in the community that can help them uh, do what's best and even help them try some new things that we don't even know work yet. We need to be somewhat experimental in some of the things we do, but not totally experimental as Dr. Bay said. You know, we can look at what happened in other cities and how it's worked and look for the best practice models in other places that were able to help people remain in their homes. Like whenever the city gives any kind of support, whether it's a planning commission approval, a zoning commission approval, financial support through URA, whenever any of that happens, there needs to be a policy that focuses on making sure people have a right to remain in the community. It doesn't displace folks. Um, so like all these other things like uh, uh, there's different kind of uh, zoning, inclusionary zoning, all those kind of policies uh, that are, uh, are, are being put forward. There needs to be a whole realm of housing related policies that become adopted by the new administration, but adopted in such a way that they can be rolled out quickly. I mean, the danger is, like with Obama and everybody else, by the time you're done giving somebody a chance to do right, they're gone and the new persons are coming, you know? So sure. you take, like they talk about 100 days and different kinds of ways to kind of judge things. We don't have 100 days. I mean, as I said, uh, home ownership is worse than it ever was in the United States for black families. And the same is probably, I don't know if that, I, we can make that same statement about Pittsburgh or Allegheny County, but I would imagine that's also true. We have to recognize that there's an, uh, we need to send out an alarm, but also we have to organize our people and our families. Uh, there are a number of different housing advocacy groups that will be very supportive. Uh, there was a, a formerly furthering uh, Fair Housing Task Force that released some reports three years ago, and none of the things in those reports were acted on. Those reports wow. need to be on Ed's desk, you know, right now. Uh, so, I mean, they're still valid. There's good work done, uh, but there's no, no support from the mayor's office. And 
we can get some merit support for even more firmly and fair, the task force report, if we can get support for that. That would be one step that's already done. And I know there are other policies being put in place right now that are heading towards the mayor's office desk. Uh, but we need to, the community, the broader community needs to know about those reports because it ain't going to happen just like I'll show you this report, Dad, and come on, let's do this. That's not going to work. The community has to be behind the proposed possible solution. The community. I mean, we, we understand better than ever uh, the relevance. I cannot, boy, my lips today, how advocacy, y'all are laughing at me, advocacy groups can, can change things. We saw it in this last 18 months, big time. And so I, I think for our listeners who are feeling really isolated right now, um, I think we, we need to make sure that they understand who these advocacy groups are, because especially now that we're dealing with the problems with single family households, um, you know, they're coming in, they're buying these houses, they're raising their rents. Or they're doing things like, well, 30 days, you're out, you know? And so you've got these individuals now who are feeling, you know, alone and afraid when they, when they get, you know, when their houses get bought up, their rental houses get bought up, and we have to figure out ways to connect them. Um, I was looking at some other policy, Carl, around just that kind of thing about um, displacement, you know, putting some teeth in the policy around when these, these folks come in and buy your, your building and you not being able to come in and just say in 30 days, you're out of here or in, you know, in 30 days, the rate goes up by 25%. You know, is there any traction around either of those types of policies? And not in, not in Pittsburgh too much, but in there, there have been tenant opportunity to purchase kind of programs where uh, if a building is be, being, is coming out from under federal government subsidy and the owner wants to sell it, uh, it is possible that tenants could have the first right of refusal to try to purchase the property as a co-op or some other kind of uh, legal entity. Mm -hmm. uh, so we need to explore those. Um, there are a number of properties in Pittsburgh that are coming up for those subsidies expiring. So we need to be watching that. Uh, there's a database called uh, Preservation Database. Uh, that that you can get the listing of all the all the all the units in your neighborhood that are about to come expire, uh, so we can get ahead of that struggle and start to organize the tenants inside those buildings, so they're in a position if they choose, well, to maybe move to try to purchase those properties before they get sold out into just the public market. But without the the leverage that we have is whenever public money is involved. Mm -hmm there can be some leverage. When it's totally private, it's really hard. So a lot of these corporate landlords that are just doing private deals, we don't have any leverage on them uh, in general uh, until we can see they've amassed so many units and then we can start to put some light on what they're doing and, and really kind of shine on it. Just like uh, I think uh, uh, Trump's son had a lot of properties in Allegheny County somewhere at one point. Wow. So if we can put some light on that. Uh, but, but, but it's harder to work with the private owners when there's no public involvement, but when there is public involvement, we do, we should have leverage as the public, uh, to force public officials to get more involved. One last thing I wanted to mention, cooperatives, cooperatives is very important. So things like limited equity co-ops for renters to be owned, to turn into owners 
they can't flip the property, but they could make some appreciation when they tend to leave. But if you have a multi-unit property, all the people in that unit could be owners like in a co-op. And there's a lot of successful co-ops in Pittsburgh, actually. Some of them are home ownership co-ops like University Square that's located right near St. Paul's Cathedral. It's been a co-op for a long time. There's about eight or nine co-op buildings in Oakland uh, that were created back in the 40s. Uh, and they're very successful buildings. I was just looking for some, uh, with somebody that was looking for a place. They had a two-bedroom, two-bath. They're selling for $120,000 in University Square. It's a co-op, and you have to pay so much a month in terms of a carrying fee. There's another fee that you have to pay. But there's a... It, we need to look at those models and how some of those models could be applicable to our communities and the people with, uh, with meager incomes and not very high incomes. Okay. One of our, uh, one of our respondents here is, is feeling like we're not giving capitalism. It's due saying that, uh, you know, black folks need to, uh, building wealth should be a priority for us. Uh, we hear you Cosmo. It's not that we're not, we're not asking people to be bored. Everybody wants to have a little bit of money in the bank, but we also are dealing with the reality of, of kind of financially where we are now. But, you know, how do y'all respond to that? You know, are we? So look, the point that Carl was just making about, you know, folks with meager incomes. Now there's this report, I don't remember the name of the organization. I can grab it in a second. They put it out every year and they look at housing markets across the country, you know, in the 50 or 100 largest metro areas. Pittsburgh is still a relatively low cost housing, I'm not going to say affordable, that according to this study, you know, currently, if you make $38,000 a year, you can afford, which you can afford, you know, with your credit and your, you, you can get a mortgage for the median house in this market, $38,000 a year that we know in black communities, you know, the houses are priced well below the median. And so, like I said, it's not just about, you know, $38,000 is not a lot of money, but it's not just about income. You look at all of those other structural factors. Wait, did, did right. you see who was making earlier, you know, banks won't lend you money if you're black and want to buy the black name. You know, that, that, that whole thing is still in existence. The fact that the city has that data and has not pushed the issue. We don't want to make enemies of dollar bank and PNC you know, and expose them for what they, you know, what they don't do. And so we don't have advocates who we've elected. We've had advocates, you know, the folks who we've elected are advocating for another vision that does not include the folks that you and I are talking about. Mm. And so that's what we got to get better at. What are our priorities? What are our, where is our agenda? You know, you look at the Equitable and Just Greater Pittsburgh platform you know, looking at how these things intersect. How does housing intersect with livelihoods, transportation, food access? Right. And how are we thinking about those kinds of solutions? Because fixing the housing, you know, can we have affordable housing, we have affordable housing, but the banks still don't lend the black folks and you still can't get jobs, that doesn't help us. And so we need folks who, big picture folks, who are ready to think about not just, okay, what am I invested in and how can I get the most out of this? Yeah, and I, I think I would just, uh, to answer your question too, Dr. Russell, I, I think when people talk about wealth building for Black people, they don't realize how, like, why the gap is. So I, I, was, I was looking at one report that said the net worth of a Black family 
was $17,000 and the net worth of a white family is $171,000. You know, Carl just read the statistics where, you know, uh, a, a white high school dropout has a better home ownership rate than black college graduates. So I, I just don't think, I think when people say that, you know, we, we tend to look at like one or two, we got one or two millionaires or billionaires and we're all happy and we're saying, oh, that's the way. But we don't realize how wide the gap. I was I was um, uh, uh, watching one thing where somebody was talking about just the effects of slavery. And they talked about how at one point, just the slaves, the value of just the slaves was $4 billion. That wasn't $4 billion now. That was $4 billion then. Oh. And just about how all of the millionaire and billionaire families, white families and white wealth that was created back then. You know what I'm saying? Now, what Carl is showing is actually worse, getting worse now than it was even in the 60s. So I think like to me, I think this is people who are really very, you know, you're looking at like one small part of it. But you're not looking at this wider piece. And, and there's people not really realizing how wide the gap is and that, yes, you may be able to build some wealth for you and your family. But how does that translate in a city where we have the poorest working class black community country? And how does it translate when we're seeing folks fall further away and further off the map? Um, and so I, I think that that to me, that's a piece I did want to um, I think. Um, Celeste had a question. Celeste Taylor had a question that I wanted to run by you, uh, our Carl, before we closed out, where she asked, is there any movement to establish a Black homeowners association that's not controlled by relationships with developers? Is there, like, is there a movement now um, to, to put something like that together? And is there some organizing around that? N not that I know of in general. I mean, we have things like, like, um, well, Operation Better Block was something like that at one point where homeowners could kind of work together around certain things. I'm not sure exactly how it functions at this point. Uh, Belmore Gardens, which is a black housing cooperative, uh, does have a homeowners association where pretty much every building or every couple of buildings has someone that sits on the board and they help to develop rules and regulations and policies for their particular neighborhood, Belmar Gardens. Uh, I'm sure there's others that I don't know about. Uh, we can think about tenant associations that, you know, up in Bedford Dwellings, there's a tenant association, there's tenant associations and many of the, the housing authority type properties. Um, I'm not sure, like some of these other, like uh, Section 8 like multifamily buildings, uh, Many of them do not have tenant associations, but they could form tenant associations. And ideally, I think as you were uh, pointing towards uh, Celeste, I believe, is those tenant associations building by building could start getting together, not just building by building, but regionally. And they could become another force. Like back in the day, there was the Metropolitan Tenants Organization that existed in Allegheny County in Pittsburgh. And it was pretty powerful. And it was one of the forerunners and partners of the welfare rights organization at that time. Uh, but we do need to look at those other alternative forms of organization that can bring us together in order to put pressure on the politicians, not in order to get the politicians elected, but in order to put pressure on the politicians to help uh, better meet the needs of the residents of the city and, and this region. 
Yeah, because we're, I mean, we're playing from behind right now. And, you know, looking at these stats since um, what was happening in 2020 with the amount of outside investment in our housing stock, I mean, it is, um, it is warp speed right now. I, it, it's, it's been really daunting to look at this research on this and realize how far behind we're getting. But, I, you know, as advocates, we don't give up. So I think organizing around this is, is how we, you got to make it uncomfortable. As long as it's easy pickings, they're going to come in and they're going to keep swooping and folks are going to keep getting displaced. But I think it moves from the, the wonderful, you know, housing advocates that we have, but to a broader community that joins this in, in a more massive way. And like right. I said, you know, Dr. Bay, you know, them sitting on this, this, this land bank thing, you know, things like that, that we, we could go out like, oh man, I can't believe this is happening to really ratcheting up the pressure on them to do what's right. Um, and I think we know how to find our voices and I think right. you know, organizing will be critical. We're so used to accepting that this is the way it is. They know yeah. it, you know, and uh, as, as Jasiri was making the point about, um, a, a, about how the, the structures that contribute to this, you it's not just housing. I was reminded, you know, reading. Uh, Representative uh, Lee Summer Lee's narrative about, you know, yeah, she's a college-educated lawyer with a whole lot of debt, you know, because she didn't come from a family that had a whole lot of resources to pay for school. And school is, you know, school is expensive, one of the other things. And it, it reminded me when I was at my first job teaching. In the second year, they hired a bunch of teachers when I, you know, when I was hired at Kingsport. And this, the second year, all the white teachers were building houses, and, you know, I'm like on the same little salary I had. And I'm like, I'm trying to hide my my used van from the repo man. I'm like, what the hell did I do different? How y'all building houses? You know, they got married and they had gifts and they had, you know, wealth. It was just accumulating that I didn't have access to. And so we talk about this, the, 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 not just the head start that so many folks have, but just the hole that so many of us are digging out of. Yeah. You know, and we don't, we, we need elected officials who, who see that, who get it, who, who are ready to fight for that. Mm. So this is, this is an advocacy and a policy fight. I think that's what we're, we're concluding here that, you know, obviously, you know, politicians don't necessarily, aren't necessarily the best people to come up with the right policy. I think that's, that's how no, you got to tell them, right. That's what Kurt yeah. said. We, look, we got to tell them they're not experts in all of these things. Here's what we're going to support you to continue to do. And as an elected official, you're as good as, what have you done for me today? Yeah. We, we're more playing from behind. Oof. So what, what I hope we do is continue to collect some resources for folks who are finding themselves. You know, we're not judging you. If, you, if you're in a situation and, you know, you're losing your house, you, you're still getting stuck with 750 from UPMC and, you know, and you're struggling. Uh, you know, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. But what we, what we hope to start doing uh, as a community is trying to find some alternatives uh, to, to having these, you know, these flyers stuck on our car and selling our houses in the next week. Because this is a cumulative impact. It's as great as what's happening in, in those really shiny, gentrified areas. They're, they're picking off our communities one by one. And we've got to figure out how to slow their roll. And this is not new. You know, I was reading something the other day and they said, you know, this stuff was perfected. Uh, when, when land was taken from, from the, from Native Americans, we've been doing this a long time and, uh, you know, periodically rise up and shut it down, but we're in another one of those periods that 1968, that, that data, 
that's sticking with me, Carl. That 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 gap back to the sixties. That is like, whoo, like we're on a treadmill. And then we just pluck out the back of it. And that's anyway. All right, guys. Um, you know, that's that's all you know that I had on this. Are there other things, any parting words on this topic? I know it's huge, but um, other thoughts are we so are. Well, I, I did, you know, and I, I, it's probably too late. Um, you know, I did want to know if Carl had a a take on the Wilkinsburg merger. Like, have you been watching that? And the, and the reason I asked is because, you know, I moderated a meeting um, last month um, around uh, folks that were for and against, you know, the merger or folks also were using the word annexation of Wilkinsburg to the city of Pittsburgh. And I'm moderating a follow-up meeting this Thursday. And one of the, the, the things that people in opposition were fearful of was Wilkinsburg now being, being gentrified. Or, so have you been looking at that? And did you have, um, did you have any, any uh, take on uh, that situation, uh, Mr. Rimm? Yeah, I think the best thing to look at is the fact that Black people have been dispersed out of the city of Pittsburgh to many different municipalities, including Wilkinsburg. And what that has done is diluted our ability to come together as a stronger force. So not just Wilkinsburg, but there's 30 some municipalities. Right. Around Duquesne, right. We're, right up. Yeah. We're in all those places and each of those places where they're alone. So one of the things we have to figure out, no matter what happens with Wilkinsburg Pittsburgh merger is, is it possible to merge black folks in Allegheny County in some formation mm. that that follows along Celeste's comments in the chat, just like how do we or organize independent homeowners? How do we organize independent residents so we're not just captives or I'm a captive of Pittsburgh or I'm a captive of Wilkinsburg? Uh, but there are, there are some benefits that could happen from merger just in terms of city services, like the city already picks up the rubbish in Wilkinsburg and you know, some, and that's what's happening throughout all these municipalities. None of them can afford, people don't have no money. We're not just losing homeowners. The income of families is decreasing, decreasing, decreasing. So all these little towns don't have no money. They can't do their school district. They can't do their fire. They can't do their, their police. They can't do their garbage. So like, and that's because people can't afford to pay money through taxes to keep all those things going because there's no more mills. There's no more town. So it, I mean, the Wilkinsburg question is a bigger question in Wilkinsburg. It's the same question for lots of municipalities around the region. Uh, and I know there's discussions, not just, not necessarily coming from the ground up or grassroots up, but there's discussions from the top down on how these mergers will happen. Uh, Absolutely. So those, those same discussions like you're doing just here from the bottom up need to happen around what are the advantages, disadvantages of these potential mergers and we need to uh, take advantage of what the advantages are, but also mitigate what the disadvantages might be if that does happen. Absolutely. I mean, as, as always, Carl is always dropping these nuggets of this thought provoking, I mean, which is just here. And so the way you describe this, this pattern of displacement in Pittsburgh, you know, this is an, is in effect the way of gerrymandering, you know, you were, you're diluting the vote, you're pushing folks out who now in the communities they're in, they're minorities again. And so now they have no voice in their new communities. And, you know, we think about what's happening. What is, what is 
county government's role in that? What is philanthropy's role in that? You look at the investments that philanthropy's making and, and the money they put into Homewood, into Hildish, into Hazelwood. And you look at the neighborhoods and communities that have lost the most people. And so as those investments are pushing people out and, and the way it's playing out, you're then further removing them from services, diluting their voice, and further isolating folks who didn't have much, you know, prior to that. Some of these folks who talk about, that, you know, this completely misrepresent what's happening in those places. Oh, people are choosing to move. They're choosing to move because you've created a situation where their lives are pretty miserable where they are. And this is not like, oh, this is an opportunity to move to Braddock. And so I think, you know, we really need to galvanize. I mean, let's see, like you said, how are we having these conversations as a black community in Allegheny County, the 170,000 of us? What's that look like? Not that we're all on the same page, you agree, but where, where are our common interests and how are we voicing and representing that? Excellent. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, no softball question at the end there, huh, Jaseri? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, usually this is the point where we talk about like what's cap, what's coming up. Hey, that's the big one, though. That's coming up on on Thursday. You know, Thursdays also. Um, UPMC workers are going on strike on Thursday. Um, it's just a lot happening. You know, our Ask a Black Doctor is this Thursday. This is a lot going on, and um, you know that that folks can't get involved in, can't find out about. So just encouraging folks to. I think ultimately what, what both you, uh, Carl, and, and, and Dr. Bay are saying is like, we got to find a way to get involved. Like, you know, don't wait until you're facing eviction or you're facing a particular crisis. Like, if we get involved now and we begin to find a way to come together in, in unity, we can begin to change these policies that, that we, can, we, can, we can live better. We can live more peacefully. We can live more, you know, uh, uh, holistically. And I think that's the, the encouragement that I would give to folks and to say that, you know, you have folks like Carl Redwood and Dr. Russell and Dr. Bay in the city, like let's utilize the, the folks that we have and let's find a way to get these, uh, um, these policies uh, in effect, you know? You know, lat white supremacy doesn't sleep. So we got to keep at it. All right. Are any other announcements or anything else going on we want to make sure people know about before we wrap? Um, I think that's it. I think I, I think that's it. Um, yeah, I'm opening another can of worms. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> All right, we we let this go, Doctor Bay. Are you are you ready to do something? I, I'm good. I was said I was I was still thinking about you know since you asked, you know if you look at the neighborhoods where in the in within the city of Pittsburgh, where black folks have moved to, you know, and you look at oh from Brookline over to Carrick you know, representing Coghill's district, you know, and this, come out and ride, drive through that district. This is Tony Moreno, Trump country. Wow. And that's what we're moving to. Deluding the voice. Right. And so you see folks with Trump, Moreno, Coghill. Well, you know, because it's all the same dude, the same policy, the same. It, it, and that's how we were talking about diluting the vote and your voice. Yeah. There's not enough folks in that district now to get rid of that. But that's what's here. And that's what's that's the effect of the failure to make a Lavelle's district and Burgess's district attractive to black folks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, 
That's a hell of a big picture. All right, we go, we go in on that note, y'all. We appreciate everybody. <laughs> we'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're going to keep at this and we'll keep posting opportunities for you to get engaged whenever we hear about them. So thanks for, for joining us. Two weeks. See you guys. Thank you, Carl, so much. Bye.